This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Ribbon in the Snow, and the author is Jack Lynette, and he joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jack. Well, hello, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing great, and great to have you on the show. Now, tell us, tell us about why you wrote Ribbon in the Snow. What was the idea behind it? Uh, well, I think it started off as a, you know, a, an, an effort to uh, get rid of a few uh, childhood memories. And, uh, uh, well, that was, that was about it, get rid of a few childhood memories. And I was killing time at waiting for my wife to come back from the cottage where she was with her family, and I had to take care of two dogs, and I had nothing to do, and I had a couple of scribblers, and so I started scribbling. So what and, were these childhood memories? Oh, well, I, I'm um, from Toronto originally, but I grew up in a small town north of here that was um, back in the mid-50s, was, you know, very, very, very parochial, and uh, uh, I'd rather have been in a big town, and and I, I guess kids in small towns see an awful lot. You know, you can be a, a middle-class boy in uh, a large city, and you just run around with a middle-class crowd. Or a wealthy child in a large city, you just run around with a, a wealthy crowd. In a small town, you run around with trailer trash and, uh, you know, the, the smart set. And uh, so I saw an awful lot of unhappy things in, in that town. And uh, I just wanted to write a little bit about them. That's all. Write about life in general. Life in general, yeah. And I uh, created a a character. I write in the first person, and so in order to keep from being overly self-protective, I uh, uh, changed the sex. I made uh, the character me, the um, the narrator, a uh, a girl, a female. Barbara Monroe. Exactly. And why did you choose to do it that way? Well, just uh, as I say, um, to keep from being overly self-protective and uh, to keep from interfering with the direction the story was taken. Also, to be frank, I'm not too interested in what little boys or teenage boys or young men think. Uh, Having thought all those thoughts, it's sort of more. I just became more interested in what uh, where girls were at. I like girls, Steve. <laughs> well, that's good. Now, you say that this appeals to young women. Yeah, I would imagine it would. And why would that be? Well, it's sort of got all the things uh, that a, you know that a, a young woman would be interested in. It's uh, so teenage women. Uh, well, it's uh, well, it, it's a biography. So she starts off as a as a you know um, as a as an infant, and uh, works her way up. A great deal of the story takes place in uh, her teenage years, um, you know, from about uh, 13 to, say, 23 or 4. 
And uh, so, let's see, you've got so many things that uh, that a young, a young woman might be interested in. You've got issues with your mother. You've got insecurity, depression. You've got love at first sight and sexuality. You've got anger and you've got redemption. And Well, I think that would interest a girl. And uh, Also, I think it would be of great interest to boomers because a good deal of the story takes place 40 years ago. So do you have a theme in this book? Are you trying to teach the reader something? Uh, no, I'm just trying to entertain. Uh, I could, there's an awful lot going on. The, the uh, young woman has some moral issues that uh, she has difficulty with. Uh, she wants to be good, but she um, completely lacks the um, intuitive mechanism of fellow feeling, and so she has to, she has to think about being good. And that's what a lot of a lot of what's happening in the show. The show, excuse me. I used to be in theater, and that's what a lot of what's happening in the book. <laughs> well, it's probably uh, was created like a show in your mind when you were writing it. Uh, well, yeah, of course. Being uh, from where I am in history, I probably write like a movie. Now, you say this book is about a morally damaged girl who wants to be a good person. Now, does she know she's morally damaged? No, I don't think so. This is a you know one of the a case of a, you know the uh, the flawed narrator. Uh, she has uh, she has her own sense of uh, she has her own values which she tries to adhere to. Um, yeah, no, she doesn't really see herself as a as a bad person. She just sees herself as somebody who's just trying just trying to get along in a in a very difficult world. And you say she uh, must try to figure all this out intellectually, mm-hmm. as opposed to well, just it just doesn't come naturally to her. She's not. Um, she's well. I guess she's a fairly selfish girl. She's been uh, raised by a in a family where uh, her mother has given her some very screwed up values. Her mother is uh, is a. a what you might call a failed beauty in the sense that uh, uh, she didn't, uh, she wanted to use her attractiveness to get somewhere in the world and uh, made a bad choice in marriage and is very angry and uh, takes it out on her daughter who she doesn't find very attractive. So her daughter then has a very uh, bad self-image? A very bad self-image, yes. Well, but she works on that as well. She's uh, she's upwardly mobile, this girl. What do you mean by upwardly mobile? Well, she's trying to improve herself. And she, um, as, uh, at an early age, um, has discovered that um, uh, sex is a, is a way of achieving a lot of what she'd, uh, what she'd like to get out of life. So she can uh, attract the boys she wants? Yes, the boys, and in some cases the girls. Oh, so we have uh, bisexual. Yes, yes, she's uh, um, she's willing to uh, experiment. Now you say that this heroine Barbara Monroe is uncompromising, honest. Yes. Now, is that good, or does that get her in trouble? Well, no, I think it's probably good, and it's uh, it's something that is, I think, good for the reader because. Uh, I think her honesty is part of what makes the reader um, 
enjoy her and like her and not think of her as some kind of a monster. She's not a monster. She's just a young chick trying to get ahead. Now, does she have some supporting cast that uh, help her or oh, well, oppose her? Yeah. Now, tell us about a couple of well, other key characters. Well, she has uh, she has uh, a, um, a homosexual hairdresser who sort of discovers her at her lowest ebb and who helps her uh, helps her uh, decide that um, that maybe that she is a, an attractive person. She thinks of herself as very unattractive, and he points out to her that, that she is very attractive. The, the girl's just sort of grown up with sort of like a, a high school Betty Boop kind of picture of what cute, like of what a, a girl should be like, and uh, he's pointing out her womanly, he points out her womanly attractiveness, and then there's a, she has some a, a various uh, various lovers who uh, uh, help her along the way to uh, self-realization, as it were. Does she ever uh, have a an acceptance by her mother that she feels like she's accepted by her mother? Well, I don't think she does. Actually, it doesn't uh, doesn't work out that way. Her uh, relationship with her mother is is sort of like a, is, is a failure, a complete failure. Um, what about the dad? Well, the father is not um, sort of like not important in the family. He's um, he's uh, married this beautiful woman who uh, doesn't understand him, who doesn't particularly like him, and so he's sort of rather than say divorcing. He has just sort of retreated into his own little world of, you know, reads, fixes cars, that sort of thing. And he, in a way, has a, abandoned his two daughters, one of whom is the heroine of my book. You also call her a calculating survivor. Yes. Well, <laughs> I, I guess I admire that myself. I would say I am not a calculating survivor. I'm a, I'm just a schlep. Uh, <laughs> I am. Um, I'm sure I, that's not true. Well, actually, it is true. Um, I, I admire I admire her very much. Actually, the character is somebody who I would like to be in many ways because she's tough. Uh, she's bold. Yes, yes. She's a uh, she's what we would call a ballsy chick, and. Um, and uh, I admire her. And as a matter of fact, a lot of women who have read it do admire her, although they tend to be a little bit appalled by her. Why are they appalled by her? Maybe they're appalled by her, her honesty. Her, uh, she doesn't you know, hide behind any kind of, uh, of any kind of a wall, or she just tells it like it is. Tell, yes, tells it, tells it exactly like it is, and sometimes it's... Uh, Sometimes it's a little scary, and other times, of course, it can be very endearing. And the um, the story goes on to to probably the point of where she's in her mid forties, and uh, by that time, her life is is settled and happy. She's a happy person. And why does she find that happiness? Well, I guess she. Uh, well, I think we all uh, come to terms. Uh, I don't know how crazy you were when you were a teenager, Steve, but I was a whack job. <laughs> and uh, 
I'm a lot <laughs> I'm a lot happier now than I than I was then with, you know, the idiot thinking of that teenagers and all, to, all the insecurities and yeah, all the imaginations yeah. and the fas- fascinations and Yeah. And the uh, list goes on, right? Yes, exactly. And uh and she's um, you know, she's come to some kind of peace in in her life. She has children in the end. We we see, we hear that she has children and and uh and she's happy. You talk about also this book is about guilt and self justification, carrying around an unhappy secret, one that could land a person in jail. That's that's a pretty extreme statement. Oh well, you see that that the self realization, of course, is, a, is a, another way of referring to her her honesty, and uh, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot, what she's done is part very soon in the in the book. She's done a few things that she feels very very guilty of. She's uh, she's betrayed a, uh, another little girl at one stage of the game uh, to some a uh, little bit of bullying. Uh, that sort of has a kind of a sexual edge to it, and um, she feels very, very badly about that. And then the story continues on with her later relationship with this little girl, later a teenage girl, and and uh, and uh, and she. Well, there are, there are some people die in this story, and she feels very badly about that. Now, she also could be at a party and look at the so-called beautiful people around her and just wonder what they're hiding, right? Oh, that's not her. That's me. Oh, that's you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that isn't in the story. Yeah, no, no, that's not in the story. That's not a quote from the book. No, that was just something that I I wrote uh, because... She she's going to carry around her secrets till she dies, and she's a you know she's a, a lady who's in the you know Toronto Social Register and and the and um, you know a happy middle aged lady who shops in the best stores, but she will always know remember this thing that happened, and and this is something that I sometimes think about as you know I'm sitting there uh, at a at a dinner party and and I know. Because I have secrets that I would never tell a soul, not in a million years, of things that pro- happened when I was a teenager that I was involved with. And I think in a way, we, and not in a way, but many of us do, uh, her, her issues happen to be a little bit more horrendous than some of us. But, you know, I know, I knew kids who who were armed robbers when they were 19 and they wound up being decent human beings, and I know it, and they know I know, and I know they know, but we never talk about it, and I would never dream of saying, oh, did you know that Gary, uh, you know, held up a 7-Eleven when he was 19? I wouldn't do that. But I I think that everybody, I think we all have, uh, what were you doing when you were up up north in the Laurentians fishing? I'll bet you were getting into trouble, Steve. (laughs) Well, that's my secret, too, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, give us some concluding thoughts about Ribbon in the Snow, Jack. Well, I, all I can say is that it's, uh, it's actually a very good story, and the um, responses I've got from it uh, have been 
have been excellent. Uh, one of the interesting things about it is that people find that they think about it for days afterwards and think about the character. It's a character-driven thing. The, the story is fairly small, but what it, the large, uh, big thing is is the character, the uh, premier character, Barbara Monroe. And she's a very nice person. And uh, I think just about anybody would like her and like to read about her and like to think about her afterwards. Well, tell us how to get your book, Jack. Well, it, uh, I believe it can be acquired through iUniverse. And uh, you probably have a better sense of how that can happen than I do. Well, of course, all the online bookstores, I'm sure, uh, either can have it or can order it as well. Uh, yes, yes. It's, it's, it's available, I believe, uh, through uh, Barnes & Noble and uh, through in Canada through Chapters Indigo. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have any of that here. And do you have a website? Uh, yes, I do. And what is that? It's uh, ribbon in the snow, one word, dot com. So a lot, lot more uh, ins and outs of the story there that we can uh, uh, glean. Oh, maybe a couple, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, Jack, it's been nice to have you on iUniverse Radio. We appreciate you. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. It's been good being on. That was Jack Lynette. He is the author of his book, Ribbon in the Snow. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Ever wondered how you can make a difference in someone's life when you don't have a lot of time or money to give? Well, the East Texas Crisis Center and Tyler Ford have partnered in a way that helps everyone. For just $10, you can win a limited edition autographed Shelby GT Mustang that has been donated to the Crisis Center by Tyler Ford. All the money stays right here in East Texas and helps victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. To get your ticket, call 903-579-2500. That's 903-579-2500. Saturdays on Toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com, and it's presented by Author House. 
the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Getting Things Done Through Project Management. And the author is Deji Badaru, and Deji joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Deji. Good afternoon. Good to have you on the show. Now, tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote this book. I'm an industrial engineering professor, and over the years, I've been able to do several things, uh, either personally or professionally, using the techniques of project management. And I felt that uh, it would be helpful to share that with other people outside my professional interactions. So this isn't written for the professional. This is a lot easier to read. Exactly. So it's a more general version of my other project management professional books. Now, when you hear the phrase project management, give us an, an overview of what that means, project management. It sounds very formal. <laughs> yes. Uh, project management uh, simply means the process of planning, organizing, executing, controlling, and closing projects. That is basically what it's all about. Uh, The typical process of scheduling activities to determine which activity goes before which activity, how long each one takes, and how you coordinate the overall process of getting a particular activity done, all of those will fall under the title of project management. Uh, It sounds formal, but it's actually something that everyone needs. Every human endeavor is indeed a project, whether we are cooking at home, whether we are doing laundry, whether we are making uh, a trip, uh, all of those can be classified as project endeavors. So it's a blueprint, if you will. Uh, Before you start to do anything, you have this vision and you put everything down on paper, exactly step-by-step process of how you're going to get it done. Exactly. Except that uh, you don't have to put all of this on paper. Once it becomes second nature, you, in the process of how you do things, uh, it also involves the commitment to get it done. In ordinary day-to-day activities, we plan what we're going to do, then we let ourselves to be derailed by other things that come up in the meantime, and thereby uh, abandoning our initial plan. Well, project management teaches you the dedication and the process of keeping with the outline of what you had intended to do. 
you use a quote in your book from the Chronicle of Higher Education that says, life is full of deadlines. You meet them, beat them, perhaps even miss them, but you know better than to ignore them. Exactly. And I like that quote very much. Uh, That's why I uh, use it in the book. Uh, Because some things, whether we like it or not, eventually will come up. And we either do it now or we have to contend with it later on. And doing it now means we can get it out of the way uh, within reason, within budget, within proper time scheduling, and we don't have to deal with it later on. We can devote our subsequent effort to other things. So don't so put off today what you, you know, what you can do today, I guess. Huh? Exactly, because there will be other things tomorrow that will come up to be done. Now, you have a success formula where you talk about success involves intelligence, common sense, and self-discipline. I think all of us can, uh, and, and we'll talk about intelligence and self-discipline, but I was uh, very curious about why you added common sense. Okay. Uh, common sense is the process of dedicating yourself to applying the intelligence that you have based on the specific social and cultural environment that you find yourself in. So common sense is that process that we learn by the associations that we keep, the environment that we find ourselves in, and how to draw inferences based on the prevailing scenarios that we operate in. So every every situation is different. Every situation is different, and you have to adapt and see what the present uh, decisions uh, are and how to use what current information you have to make current decisions. Someone might feel that they're not smart enough to do something, but can they learn? Oh, that's definitely. Uh, we always say that book smart is different from being street smart. Street smart means that you know what is going on. You keep connected to your environment. And you use the information in the environment to make appropriate decisions to get things done. So everyone can learn. Everyone is uh, endowed with that process of having natural intelligence, but more importantly, to be able to connect to your environment and make decisions that are current for what is going on. Of course, the self-discipline aspect of this is so crucial. Just without that, nothing happens. Nothing happens, exactly. exactly. And this is particularly useful for youth uh, who typically might want to rely on the fact that they have uh, intelligent, natural intelligence and they know it all. But sometimes if they know it all, but they are not connected with their environment, the decision they make may not fit the current situation they are in. So that self-discipline is also tied to a self-motivation as well. Uh, exactly. And project management teaches us that self-motivation to be self-actuating 
Don't wait until somebody uh, beats you on the head to get moving. You know you have to move, so you might as well be proactive and get going. As someone said, well, uh, I'm just waiting for someone to motivate me. And the person said, well, what if that person doesn't show up? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. All right. Now, compromise. How does that part of this this project management? Uh, uh, No situation is ever perfect. We will always have to be willing to compromise, to give and take, and trade off. The typical process of getting things done may be on the basis of cost, time, or quality. Well, we cannot always be able to perform what we need to perform within the time that we expect it to be done. We may not be able to do it within the cost that we feel it should take us to get it done. And the quality also may not be at the level that we always expect. So with those three items, you have to be flexible to be able to give and take under certain circumstances. Today, you may be able to get the best quality. Maybe tomorrow, all you can get is the best cost. So not all of those three will be at the optimum level in each and every case. So compromise means to recognize when you need to yield on some expectation. That does not mean abandon the expectation, simply modify and adapt. Delegation is often a key part because you can't do everything. Exactly. Uh, Many people uh, make the mistake of thinking just because they have the skill to do something, They should always jump in there and get it done. A good example is uh, do-it-yourself projects that we do at home. I would say, oh, well, I can do it. I've done it before. Well, maybe you're able to do it last year when you don't have a baby in the house. You don't have further demands on your time. Now you want to do the same thing where the environment is different. You might want to hire somebody to do it this year, something like that. Now, perseverance... That has a very uh, alarming uh, tone to most people because perseverance sounds like, oh, my goodness, whatever it takes to get it done. You know, you just got to endure through everything, don't you? Uh, Yes. Because there's going to be the ups and downs. There's going to be the walls that you got to climb, and it's a lot of it's going to be uphill. Exactly. Uh, But it's not as intimidating as it sounds. Uh, it simply means don't give up. Uh, every challenge eventually gets a resolution. It may not be the best resolution, but if you don't give up, you will eventually achieve something that comes out of the challenge. So that's what perseverance is. And, res- and the resolution may not be what you had in mind. It may not be, yes. You have to be willing to be flexible and adapt and make the best of whatever that resolution presents. Now, cooperation, when you're teaming with others, partnering with others, obviously cooperation, communication, coordination, you've got to be able to work with other people. Uh, Yes, Uh, that's my favorite thing to uh, present. 
because many times we assume just because somebody is smiling and nodding in agreement, that person is going to exhibit cooperation if we turn our back. No, it doesn't always happen like that. You have to earn and explicitly pursue the cooperation of the people you are dealing with. In other words, you use communication to convince them of the need to participate and do their share. Once they are convinced, if you turn your back, they will do the right thing. So that's what cooperation means. You want it to come from their heart, feeling that, yes, this is something I also want to do. This is something I want to participate in, and I have contribution to make, and that contribution can yield positive results on the task. That's what you want to achieve with, co with cooperation. We made the mistake of simply, oh, yeah, we are cooperating. Oh, he's cooperative. But we really haven't convinced that other individual of the cooperation that will come uh, inherently from their own perception of what is going on. Very good. I like that. What about the saying, timing is everything? Uh, timing is everything. Uh, as I said before, opportunities will always present themselves at different times in different flavors. The timing that uh, works today for a particular set of options may not work tomorrow. Again, we have to learn to adapt. And once the opportunity presents itself, we take advantage of it. As we discussed earlier, don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. If the opportunity presents itself today, go ahead and get it done. If you put it off to do tomorrow, the circumstances may be different, and what looks so appealing today may no longer be valid tomorrow. So timing is uh, everything. Also, it's often better to go outside to get things done, to get help, to uh, get services, products. Yes. I used one uh, comic in the book about outsourcing what can be more reasonably done by somebody who is an expert who does that particular task day in, day out. So in some cases, you need help. And if you can get the help somewhere, that's where you have to compromise. It means it costs you more, but the quality of the work will probably be higher, and the time required to get it done will probably be shorter. So you compromise on the cost in order to achieve better quality and better on-time performance. And finally, Deji, maximizing every hour. That, that is very difficult to stay focused. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, you, uh, technically, we cannot maximize every hour, but if we move towards that perception, it means we milk every hour. We get the utmost that we can out of every hour. If we go with that mindset, then we finish each hour feeling that, yes, I've accomplished something. I got something done with that one hour. And then that creates the motivation and leverage to go into the next hour and begin to do more things. 
Any closing thoughts? Uh, the most important uh, lesson that I wanted to convey in this book uh, is really the dedication to doing what needs to be done. And uh, the way you do that is to get into the habit of thinking project management is the way to go. Everything in life is a project. And if we take everything indeed as a project that we plan, organize, schedule, and control, uh, we can realize most of our goals and objectives. J.G., where do we get your book? Uh, it's available on iUniverse website. Uh, I believe it's also available on Amazon.com. And I know there are plans to have it available through many of the bookstores, particularly uh, Barnes & Noble. So it is uh, going to be very ubiquitous. You should be able to find it uh, through many online uh, outlets. Hey, G, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Uh, thank you so much. This has been very exciting. I appreciate the opportunity. That was Deji Bataru. He is the yes. author of his book, Getting Things Done Through Project Management. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Lucifer's Trumpet, and the author is John C. Williams, and John joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, John. Hello, how are you, Steve? Well, this is a... Flashback to the Roaring Twenties, and I guess that's a kind of a period in history that really fascinates you. Yes, it does. My father was, during that era, he was in his heyday, you might say. And I've always, I kind of watched back, you know, the old Elliot Ness things and things like that. I've always been fascinated by that sort of, a, that period in there. So you were, you 
told stories and somebody once said to you, you ought to write a book. Yeah, you know, you know, I guess everybody has that happen to them. They say, oh, you know, I've been doing this, I've done that. And, and they say, you know, you ought to write a book about it. And that's where I started. I started writing a book and I started writing about my own life. And then, of course, I had to go back to my father's life, who was born in a mining camp in Canada, in Nanaimo, Canada. And I found out his life was a lot more exciting than mine when I started thinking about all the stories he told me. And so I embellished some of the stories and, and uh, took him out of Canada and put him in Seattle and, and uh, during Prohibition, and he got in a lot of trouble. The main character's name is Samuel Wilde. Samuel Wilde, right? Now he he kind of gets uh, innocently hooked into this crowd, right? Yeah. Well, actually, he he and his friend were in a in a cave in in a mine cave in, and one of their best friends got killed, and they're thinking to themselves, you know, it's not going to be too much longer until this is going to happen to us. And they're sitting in about three or four weeks after the cave-in, and they're sitting in a little tavern, and a man approaches them and says, hey, you guys want to get out of the mines and come work for me in Seattle? And they take it from there. Samuel goes, and his other friends decides to stay back and work the mines. And so that's sort of where it, where it starts out. So he ends up working for a guy named Milo D'Angelo? Yeah, that's the man in the... That was the man in the bar that who introduced himself, and he came in and uh, had their, the, everything arranged and took him down to Seattle, and, and he started right away thinking it was a legitimate business and ended up, of course, being a bootleg business. Looked like he was working for some kind of a fish outfit, huh? Yeah, they, a, a fish broker. He was a fish broker was the cover for his illegal operation there. And, of course, with anything like the gang, uh, they asked you to do one thing, and then suddenly you're starting to do other things you never bargained for. Yep, and, and of course, with Samuel now, he, he's, he's a drinker. He's, that's what they did in the mining camps. They drank, and Saturday night was a big thing, so this was good for him to go down and work for a bootlegger because he knew he was going to get drinking, and he was going to be, everything was okay. He didn't have any moral issues with being a, a bootlegger or a rum runner. And he kind of fit right in. And, and once he got established and once he, once he saw that things he knew as a child or was taught growing up weren't always so, then he started adjusting. And that's sort of how he moved, he moved to the next step. <clears throat> now you talk about Sam... Samuel, uh, his emergence as a man overcoming his fears. Now, give us some insight into his fears. Well, the, the thing, the, the title of the book is Lucifer's Trumpet. And as a child, four-year-old child, Samuel was out with his father on a boat. His father was um, a terror. He would beat him and do different things to him. But he tried to, to um, teach Samuel how to swim. And he, when he went in the water, Samuel didn't want to go. So the father held him under, and just before, just before he um, blacked out, he heard this music, this heavy song, beautiful music, and he blacked out. And then 16, 17 years later, somebody mentioned that what he heard was Lucifer's trumpet, that Lucifer was coming for his soul. Well, Samuel was always afraid of deep water after that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... Uh, I carry that theme through 
through the whole book. And at the end, he has to come face-to-face with deep water, and he, he does. So. And you talk about the different characters that uh, helped reshape him. Now, talk about these different characters and uh, how they were able to help him. Well, one of the things, if you're in, he grew up kind of in an isolated community, you know, a Welch mining community. And they had definite thoughts and ideas. Um, Chinese were looked down upon. Women, I guess, were looked down upon. But when he went out, he had to, all of a sudden, he runs into Chinese people. He not only has to work with, but work for. He runs into an effeminate man who, he, who scares him to death. But if he wants to get illegal whiskey so he can drink it, he has to kind of play ball with this guy. And... All the time he's seeing that all these old uh, phobias or whatever fears that he had or ideas that he had about people weren't necessarily so, and he he quit just judging groups. Like, you know, you had to go to an individual and say, you know, all Chinese are bad. He's finding this out, you know. And so he just, it's just um, people kept pushing in one direction. The, The effeminate man actually taught him how to go into libraries and check out books, took him to cultural places, took him um, to the opera. I have a scene where he goes and watches Faust. And um, everything is pretty much on the up and up, and they, they, could, they turn out to be very good friends. And uh, Samuel also runs into a, a Chinese woman who is a U.S. marshal, and he's, if he's going to stay out of trouble and stay out of jail and stay out of being deported, He's got to work with her. Well, at first he doesn't like the idea, but then, of course, they, he finds out that they're, she's good and she's helpful and works with him. And he just, he, he, his whole ideas change. I get him, I start him out as pretty comfortable as a minor. Then he comes to Seattle and he has some rough spots, but he gets comfortable again. And then once he gets comfortable, that last time, I really dro- drop the load on him. I make everything sort of crumble, everything he's, known and seen about these people that he's been in all like Milo. He was in awe of Milo and he finds out several things about Milo that just changes his opinion and attitude towards him. And at the end, he's had to make the right choices. Life is choices and the better choices you make, the better off you're going to be. And that's basically what happens with uh, Samuel. There must be a softer side in this story. There must be a woman somewhere. Oh, there's a couple, yeah. So tell us about the romance with uh, Samuel or the help he gets from a special female friend. Well, he, he, as he was going over to Seattle um, on the boat, one of the, his friends in the mine, his sister went over, Mary, and he, she was also going down to Seattle. So he was going to look her up, and, you know, that was going to be somebody from home that he could deal with and like that. But he fell in love with the office manager, who was a Hungarian woman who had a eight-year-old child, and she was about 10 years older than Samuel. And she didn't want to have anything to do with him for a long time, but he kept working his way, working his way. I put in there, he'd get the $35 haircuts and the 50-cent shirts and things like that. He, he wanted to look good around her all the time. And she ended up being one of the major players in the final scene of the whole thing. And, and 
she broke his heart, and he was just devastated when he lost her. So it was, um, he, he, you know, you learn by getting hurt. You learn by finding out, and that's how Samuel learns. He didn't learn from books. He learned from life, from experiences and stuff like that. So who is the protagonist? Samuel's the protagonist. Oh, the protagonist? Right. Uh, Samuel's the protagonist. Well, is He's there the hero, is there right? the law that's after him or after Milo well, the, that they have to deal with something somebody like a Elliot Ness type of figure? Well, yeah, that's that's uh, Anna, the the Chinese marshal. She's she's the one that comes in and and she's working with another man. And what it, they're not after the the alcohol because everybody knows that the alcohol is going to uh, prohibition is going to change pretty soon. They're going to vote it back out and they'll be drinking. But <clears throat> Milo had gotten a hold of a catch of um, uh, chemical weapons they used in World War II, and he was selling these to different people and for huge amounts of money. And that's what the marshals were in there trying to catch. They, could, they couldn't find out where these weapons were coming from, and they used Samuel as uh, bait sort of, or an informer, and he didn't like doing that at all because he's scared of Milo. Uh, he's scared of the operation. He sees Milo having people killed and, and things like this, and he, did, he just was, didn't want to do it. But they convinced him after uh, somebody got one of the characters in that gets killed, Samuels goes, oh, no, I got to go help. And that's one of the things where you, you change. So it was really understanding who Milo was. That's right. Milo, the, Milo's wife completely tells Samuel about what what happened with Milo and as a youth and, and why he was like he is. And, and I kind of, I kind of leave that because that's sort of a surprise when you get to that point in the book. And, um, it, it's sort of made sense. Every, everything that I wrote about in the book, I either knew about personally, or if I didn't know about it personally, Samuel never knew about it personally. In other words, if, um, if he, if he went into a place, um, opera if he went into a, a production of Faust he didn't know about that but he found out about it and it's just he just kept learning and learning as he went along and and he took the good fortunately he took some of the good or more of the good than the bad as he um, went through life so the book is a uh, process of Samuel Struggling between good and evil until finally he can uh, make the big decision? Right. Yeah, and that happens right right towards the end. And and in the end, I I got a nice twist to this. I I think it's a nice twist anyway to the end of the book. And that's where where things really make sense to him. All of a sudden, things hadn't made sense to him before. He didn't understand why they just couldn't arrest these people, why this couldn't happen. And all of a sudden... At the end of the book, he understands. You said you've never read a book like this. No. Now explain that. Well, I, I mean, I've never read a book where the characters had the characteristics of, of what I've written about. I've never known, I've never read a book like that. I don't know what I, I don't know how to explain that, but um, it's a coming-of-age book, and... It's just something that I, I've, I've never seen. I, I read a lot of mysteries and things like that, 
but I've never read anything quite the way that I put things in the book. Why was that, uh, the Roaring Twenties, why, why did that seem so glamorous to uh, a lot of people when you look back on it? Well, you know it was a time of independence. You know when you stop and you think about um, cars in the Roaring Twenties, for example, most everybody could fix their own car. Most everybody knew how to fix them and would fix their own cars. There, were, there, there wasn't such thing as microchips. If you, they're all, everything was geared, big chairs, pulleys. You see a gear break, you know, that's what's wrong with it. You change the gear, you go on. Sawmills were huge, and, and uh, people, tons and tons of people worked for it. They had company uh, towns. Uh, it, was, it, was just a, it was just a different era. It was a, a fast, hard-living era. People got hit, got hurt. Boxing was tough. Football was tough. I, think it, I just thought it was a tougher area, era, and I... Always kind of think back about that and think of how my father, he was a tough man. He wasn't, uh, he was independent and he was strong. And I figured that is because he lived through that era where they had to be tough or you drop out. Yeah, we certainly uh, need some strong, independent people today. We don't seem to have that same kind of mentality in this country. No, and they, I, you know, I believe that that's almost. What we're going to have to go back to is people are going to have to quit depending on, they're going to have to depend on themselves. They're going to have to take, take their own lives and, and mold their own lives and, and make them move. And that's exactly what Samuel did. That's what he did. And the other fellow that he was drinking with in the bar, Jack, he stayed, he stayed back in uh, Seattle. I mean, stayed back in the Nymon and worked the, the, uh, the mines. And Jack never got involved now, Jack was out. Samuel looked back as they were pulling away on the ferry going from Departure Bay to um, Vancouver. He looked back and thought he might have seen Jack coming out of the shadows, but the fog closed it off, and we're, we're done with Jack after that. Any closing thoughts, John? Uh, no, I, I not offhand. I, I, like I say, I think it's a, uh, uh, the book is all about choices, making you started making bad choices. You, you think about bad choices would be like your, like you getting a tattoo of your girlfriend on your butt and then marrying somebody else. You know that's a bad choice, and and you got to keep you know moving ahead. And, and um, I think I think at the end of the book, people will see that that's what I did. I, I got him from one one line of thinking to opening up his mind and accepting more and accepting more and understanding that, that I. I I hope I knocked some of the prejudice out of him. I hope he understood that, you know, things aren't exactly as they seem because, like I say, everything crumbles for him at the end, and he either has to stand up or he's going to be killed. Oh, and I'm writing a sequel, so... Ah. <laughs> we're going we're gonna <laughs> to know more about, away, huh? more about Samuel, huh? Yeah. Well, tell us how to get your book, Lucifer's Trumpet. Right. Um, it's on Amazon, and it's also, I have a website... And my website is jwilliamsbooks.com. jwilliamsbooks, all plural, yeah. .com. Right. And, of course, you can get it from our universe. Our universe, right. Uh, Barnes & Noble have it. Uh, gee, I try to get it at uh, uh, Borders, and they don't have it. So 
I don't know why that is, but yeah, anyway. people can pretty well order it from anyone, though. They'll, yeah. they'll always be able to get it. Yeah. Great to have you on iUniverse Radio, John. Appreciate it. Okay. That was John Williams. He is the author of his book, Lucifer's Trumpet. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.